from the King James Version, New King James Version, Psalms 34, 1 through 5. 34, 1 through 5. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. In the Old Testament, you will find a story of a young man who rose to power only by the help of God. He, he has very humble beginnings. This young man who, ha, who really comes from a, a no-name family, doesn't really have anything from his background, his context, that would help him in setting, will help or aid in, in setting him up to his rise of glory, yet he still rises to power. Now as he grows and as he matures and as he finds himself with a job, he, he, he tends to prove himself. It's obvious to those around him that he is skilled and that he is gifted and that he has the power to lead. And people witness that and recognize that about him. He's an Israelite man. And he's living in a period of time where the king that he is living under has gone astray from the word of the Lord. The king that he is serving under has gone wayward, has gone, some might even say mad. He's left the side of God and no longer truly leads the nation that way anymore. And so one day when this man, this young man is working, he's traveling from one place to the next, a prophet comes to him. A prophet approaches him and tells him the, the, the despot, the, the, the bad situation that Israel is in. He lays out just how awful this king has been and, and how God is going to, to remove him. The prophet explains to this young man that the Lord has decided to take away the kingdom from this king and to start anew with a new man, to appoint a new king. The prophet goes on and says that this new man will have his family line solidified for ages to come. He will have land, possessions, power like he's never thought he would ever have. And then he reveals to this man that this new king that God is calling out was to be him. And before he can truly even process this world-shattering, shatter, world-shaking news that not only, is Lord, not, not only is God taking the kingdom away from this once-appointed man of God, the Lord has seemed him worthy. He has deemed that he is to be the next king. And before he can even process that, unfortunately, the word gets out. The king finds out that, well, God isn't happy with him, and he's promised the kingdom to another man. But even more than that, the word gets out that this king is seeking to find and to kill this prophesied new king. And so this young man flees. He goes into exile and spends years running from the king, scared for his life, knowing what God has promised him, knowing what the prophet has told him, but also knowing the real danger of not being in Israel. So he flees. He runs south. And he waits, but he never lets go of the promise that he heard from that prophet. 
He never lets go of the testimony that the Lord had given him that he was to be the next king. And so he holds on to it and he waits. And years go by. And eventually, the old mad king passes away. So he shows back up. This, this young man who is now older. He shows back up in Israel. He returns to his homeland. He's ready to take the kingdom that has been promised to him. And all goes according to plan. Just as the Lord had prophesied, just as the Lord had told him, in a matter of no time at all, he is given the crown. He's given power over the majority of God's people. He's given possessions, fame, glory. Everybody's looking to him to be the guy. Now, who am I talking about? If it, as I was talking about this, in your, and in your mind, you're, maybe you're thinking of a certain Bible character, was it the man that we know as David? Would it surprise you that that's not who I'm talking about? That the story I just told is, is a true account. I didn't, you know, exaggerate. I didn't make up this detail. It's an exact telling of a different man in Scriptures who just happens to have the exact same setup as David, who just happens to have the same potential as David, who happens to have the same promises given to him as David did. To meet this man, I ask that you open up to 1 Kings chapter 11. That's where we're going to be at for the majority of today. 1 Kings chapter 11. The man we're talking about today is a gentleman named Jeroboam. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 26 through 28, is really the first mention of Jeroboam. He comes onto the scene not really knowing much about him, and we already get to see his potential. Let's meet the man we're going to be speaking about today, this young man who's now grown old, this young man who will be promised a kingdom and who will one day seize it. Verse 26, And Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and Ephraimite of Zeredah, Solomon's servant, whose name whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. Now this was the reason why he rebelled against the king. Solomon built the Milo and closed up the breach of the city of his father David. Now the man Jeroboam was a valiant warrior, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he appointed him over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. Now, it's kind of interesting how this text is laid out because it seems, to, it seems to say, here's Jeroboam, and he betrays the king, and this is the story of how, how that happens. And then the very next comment is very nice about Jeroboam. Solomon really loves Jeroboam. Solomon is uplifting Jeroboam. So what we have going on here is the writer of 1 Kings is saying, okay, this is what he's eventually going to do. Now let's start back at chapter 1, and let's meet this man who eventually will turn against the king. And so he steps back and starts to explain the story. Jeroboam comes on the scene. We know he's an Ephraimite. He knows he's a servant of Solomon. He works for the kingdom to some degree. We really, the first thing we get to know about Jeroboam is that he is a construction worker. He works and he labors to some degree in the construction projects of the king. He's helping build new terraces. He's helping patch up old, you know, beaten down walls. And because of his character and because of his work ethic, he's, he's described as industrious, hardworking, smart in how he worked. So Solomon, later in his life, recognizes him and pulls him up into a position of power. And he gives him the title of over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. 
when it, which instantly kind of gives him this middleman position over two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, that when they, looked to, when they went to the king, now Jeroboam was this middleman. He was over, he was a governor over this area. He was over this huge project. So just because of the potential that this king saw in this young man, because he's young at this point, the potential that Solomon saw in him raised him up and said, I see something in you, son. I'm going to give you a title. I'm going to give you a, an important job. I'm going to give you a purpose. And it raises him up. And that's great. That's a great first sign of Jeroboam. And it only gets better from there. If we keep reading in verse 29 through 30, he's leaving Jerusalem. He's on his way back home from this area. And a prophet comes and meets him. I say these names about ten times before I get up here. Ahijah. Forget it. Verse 29. Why do I? I don't know why words are difficult for me at times. My Alabama wants to say, Alabama and me wants to say Ahijah, but I know that's not right. But this prophet comes up to him. Okay, you see his name, 29. You see the man's name. I digress. The prophet comes up to him and he kind of shows what's going on here. He has this new tunic on. He rips it in 12 pieces and he gives him 10. And then in verses 31 through 36, he starts to explain to him, the Lord is about to take away this kingdom. This story that I just told a second ago. The prophet is revealing to Jeroboam that the Lord is upset with Solomon. Solomon has led Israel astray because he has bowed down to the other gods. He's been, Solomon's been, been led astray by the people in his life. And so this prophet tells Jeroboam, okay, I'm going to take away the kingdom from him. I still will, I still will respect the, the, you know, the line of David. So I'm not going to take everything away, but 10 out of 12. All but one tribe will remain faithful to him. And then let's look, read with me in verse 37. Verses 31 through 36, I'm going to take away the kingdom from Solomon. Now let's see how he's going to give the kingdom to Jeroboam. And I will take you and you shall reign over whatever you desire. And you shall be king over Israel. Then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight for, by observing my statutes and my commandments as my servant, David, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David. And I will give Israel to you. Thus I will afflict the descendants of David for this, but not always. Can you see the promises that God is giving Jeroboam? We already see his potential. Solomon already recognized how great of a man this gentleman is, how great of a man Jeroboam is. Now God has promised him the exact same thing that just a couple generations before he promised David. I will secure your name for generations to come. I will, I will put you in a, in a seat of honor and glory of power. Any possessions, land that your soul desires, it's yours. You are going to be my leader. And he gives them this power. Verse 40, Solomon finds out. He starts to hunt him. Verse 41 through 42, Jeroboam has to flee this land. He lives in Egypt for up, upwards of two decades, waiting to see how this will play out. And Solomon finally passes away. And Jeroboam kind of dips his foot back in the waters and kind of tests how the politics are going on in Israel. He shows back up, and Solomon's son, Rehoboam, used to think these two guys were brothers. They're not. Rehoboam. Rehoboam is not really off to a great start either. 
Jeroboam on behalf of all his people, on behalf of the power that he already kind of has from Sol- that Solomon gave him, goes to Rehoboam, the now the new king of Israel, and says, you know, your father was heavy-handed on taxes. Your father was heavy-handed on his discipline on us. Will you lighten this up? We will serve you. And Rehoboam goes, okay, look, give me three days and I'll think about it. And he goes and talks to some people and they give him, they give him the advice. You should be kind. You should be merciful. You should, you should lend, you know, um, lend a helping hand to these people. Rehoboam says, no, 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 thank you. He ignores the advice of his peers. He ignores the advice of everybody around him. And he says, you know what? You only thought my father was hard. I'll show you how, hard, how heavy these taxes can get. I'll show you how hard the whip can come down on you. I will double down on my father's pestilence. I will double down on his hard-heartedness. In verses 16 through 20, Israel has no more patience. The nation of Israel walks home. And here in 1 Kings chapter, chapter 12, verses 16 through 20, it's at this moment that the nation of Israel divides itself. There's Judah, the tribe of David, the one tribe that stayed with them, the Benjamites. And the other ten, they walk away. And guess who they look to as their leader? It's an obvious man who they would look to. This is the man that they all know God has already prophesied to be the next king. This is a man that the last king already saw the potential in. And so in verse 20, chapter, 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 20, it came about when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned that they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all of Israel. None but the tribe of Judah followed the house of David. After this, a war nearly breaks out. Rehoboam shows up with over 100,000 men. He's about to take down. But he changes his mind. He tucks his tail and goes home. Rehoboam has just cost him and his family the whole kingdom. And now Jeroboam is he's the guy. He is the leader. He is the king over ten twelfths, eleven twelfths of the nation, right? He is the man everybody is looking to. Are you still with me? Have you weathered this history lesson so far? Have you weathered this, this, this grand narrative of Jeroboam's life? I hope you stayed with me so far. So how does he do it in his first day in the office? You know, when we have a new leader, we have those, don't we? we have new leaders, we're anxious to see how the first hundred days go. We're anxious to see how the first term, the first year, the first month goes and what they're going to do and the decisions they're going to make. And so as Jeroboam, this prophesied, this great potential man, steps into the office, everybody's on the hills thinking, Who, how is this king going to be? Is he going to be like Solomon? Or will he be like David? He must be like David because God called him out like David. And this is how he starts. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 26 through 33. A little bit lengthier reading, but stay with me. 1 Kings 12, 26-33. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, the heart of this people will return to the Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. So the king consulted, and he made two golden calves. And he said to them, It is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you from the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel, and he put the other in Dam. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before one as far as Dan. And he made houses on high places. He made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. 
Jeroboam instituted a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of that month, like the feast which is in Judah. And he went up to the altar. Thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. And, this, and, and he stationed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. Verse 33. Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel. On the fifteenth day in the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart, and he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel, and went up to the altar to burn incense. I'm trying to catch up to my, my prior point here, excuse me. He fails. His first day in office, this highly anticipated moment where this man of God is finally at, sitting on the throne that God had prophesied about decades before, is finally sitting, is finally in the position that God has called him out to be, and he fails this badly. He goes back to the, almost the decision of Aaron, and he, and he, and he creates this middleman. You see, the Israelites and back in Exodus, they were scared of the mountain. They were scared of God. Their middleman, Moses, had left them. So they, they feel like we have to create a God that stands between us and the God will have this golden calf. And now Jeroboam, doesn't want, he doesn't want his people to go down to Jerusalem. He doesn't want all his, all his loyal subjects to go down to Judah to, to mix and mingle with those people, to hang out with those that are loyal to Rehoboam, because he knows if they go down there, They'll find sympathy for the true king, or the actual king, even though that's not right. He knows he's the right one. He's, a, he's afraid that they'll go down there and forget about him. They're afraid that when they come back, they'll seek to, to end his life. And so he creates two golden calves, this new middleman between them and God. We can go to the calves, not the temple. We can go to these calves in Bethel in the south and Dan in the north. And we don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore. I'm making it more convenient for you. And we'll have these high places. We don't have to go to, to this area to worship, to this area to praise. On every mountain, there'll be a pillar. To every mountain, there'll be an altar that you can sacrifice to. And if you've always wanted to hold that position of a, of a Levitical priest, 1 Kings 13 and verse 33 said, He let anybody who wanted the position to have it. If you ever wanted to stand in that role, to be the holy anointed priest of God, then you can do it. And these ordained feasts that we have, to, we have to follow, that God gave to us on certain days, at certain moments, for certain reasons, I'm just going to change that. And this command that there's only one man worthy to sacrifice. Well, now that man is me. Jeroboam fails on an epic proportion. And what can we learn from that this morning? What can we take away from a failure from 2000, over 2,000 years ago? Jeroboam, not only, he fell so bad that his legacy for the rest of, of Scripture, he will, he's the first king of the northern half of Israel, right? The next 19 that go after him just get worse and worse and worse. And even those in the southern kingdom who are bad, when they're described as bad kings, the moniker is given, they walked in the ways of Jeroboam, comma, who made Israel sin. Jeroboam is so bad that his name is tainted for the rest of his days, the rest uh, of eternity. It's, it's like the Judas of the New Testament. We don't see many Jeroboams walking around the auditorium today, do we? Jeroboam fails on a ter uh, just in an awful way. 
And what can we learn from that? There, what we can learn from that is this. We have to look at the motive. Look back at verse 26. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord, and the heart of this people will return to the Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. What happened to Jeroboam? My theory on what happened to Jeroboam is that he let his fear over, override him. He let his fear that his subjects would go down to Israel would travel back to Jerusalem and forget the former king. He was afraid if things didn't change, he'd lose all the power he just got. He was afraid that they might even rebel and try taking his life. Maybe he was afraid to go in exile again. Maybe he was, he was tired of running and he wanted this power and he wasn't going to let anybody take it away from him. And so he let that fear drive him to make all these terrible decisions. And what a powerful drive fear is. What a, what a powerful motivator that fear is in our lives today. Fear motivated Adam and Eve, just like Brother Howard just mentioned a moment ago. When God comes down looking for them, they were, they were afraid and hid themselves. Fear drove Jeroboam to make some awful decisions and ruin the rest of that line of Israel. Fear drove Peter to deny Christ a courtyard away. And to quote Solomon, the man that came before Jeroboam. There's nothing new under the sun, right? Fear, I'm afraid, drives too many of us today. Fear takes the driving seat, takes the will from us too many times today. What is your relationship with your fears this morning? How are the fears that you have affecting you? With the time we have left, we have left. We're going to look at a few, and we're going to go, th- go through them quickly. I now sympathize with Kyle. You, don't get, you get up here, you don't get much time. We're going to go through them pretty quickly. But I'm going to be honest, and my prayer is that you'll be honest with yourself and see if these fears have ever attacked you, and if you've ever let these fears drive you before. When fear is in the driver's seat, the destination is never good. The first fear I want to look at is the, the first way fear affects us is that fear isolates us. Fear drives us to bear our own burdens. Fear of what others might say, what, what they might think, what they might do, when they find out or realize the depth of the pain or our struggle. We go home and we, and we, and we know what we're struggling with. We wake up and we understand the pains that we have. We walk, we walk in here on Sunday morning and on Sunday nights and on Wednesdays and we're so afraid to let that be seen. We're so afraid to, to let that show on our faces, to actually speak, to, to reach out and to speak out to those around us. Because what are they going to say? What are they going to do? How are they going to react to this? And so we walk in, and we walk right past people who could help us. And Satan just smiles. He just looks at us and just smiles and says, you're exactly where I need you to be. I need you to be so afraid to find help that you'll stay in your pain. Fear drives us to, to carry our own burdens. Fear drives us to to be afraid that we actually might need someone else. We're afraid to admit that the pain, the temptations, whatever it might be that weighs us down are so great that we're not strong enough individually to overcome them. And I know the men in the congregation, and many of us can agree with this, it's hard to admit 
okay, I, I need some help here. One of the most embarrassing moments in my time here happened about three days after I got here. John, you were part of the story. Um, we're out of Monday Night Out, and we're, I think we're at the Thompsons, and we're getting hot dogs or hamburgers, and there's a pickle jar, and I go to open it. Didn't open it. You know, me and my, my muscles just didn't get on the same page, and we're, I'm just, and John just doesn't say a word, just very gently just grabs the pickle. <laughs> I would have sat there for an hour. I would have walked into the backyard, went around the corner, and just prod that pickle jar over, because I wasn't going to ask for any help. It's just a, a simple, easy reminder that it, it's hard for us to admit that sometimes we just don't have what it takes in this. Because we have to throw up the flag, we have to throw up the white flag and say, you know what, Lord, I, I'm not strong enough. I need some, some, I know you're helping me, but I need some outward help for my brothers and sisters to be there with me. I'm not strong enough. And I don't, I don't want to admit that, and I'm sure you don't either. And so, so we come in, we walk in, and we walk past those that could help us, because we don't want to admit that we need them. And Satan just smiles, because fear is in control, and we're never going to get out of our pain, out of our temptations. Fear isolates us. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2, Paul writes, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. When we don't let others help, the only thing that is accomplished is we are robbing other people from fulfilling the law of Christ. Have you ever thought about it that way? I can't remember who, who it was who challenged me to think this way, but I think there was a moment where I, I was hesitant to kind of to reach out. I was hesitant to really just kind of, okay, this is what I'm going through. And I had a brother tell me one time, says, let me help you. Don't take this opportunity, opportunity for me to do the work of Christ, the work of God. Let me be there for you. Don't rob me of this. And when we walk in on Sundays and Wednesdays, and on Thursdays when we're thinking about the people that maybe could help us, or we're in a moment of distress, and we don't reach out, not only are we hurting us, but we're robbing the people in these pews this morning at home watching an opportunity to fulfill the law of Christ. And who are we to impede that? We have an obligation to reach out. Fear tells us that this isn't that big of a problem, whatever it might be. Fear tells us that even if they did not know, even if, even if they did know, they couldn't help. Fear tells us the lie that this is only going to complicate things and, makes me, and make me look bad. Fear tells us I don't need help. I don't need help from a friend. Fear tells us I don't need help from a mentor. Fear, fear tells us I don't need help from my elders. And fear tells us that I sh surely don't need professional help. Surely these problems that I'm having with this spouse or my spouse, or surely these problems I'm having with past pain, surely the problem of just being overwhelmed, surely I don't need someone to that caliber, right? Why are we so afraid to help ourselves? If I, walk, if I walked in this morning with a broken leg, would y'all have let me get up here? No! You, maybe, you might have broken my other leg calling me how dumb I was for trying to walk on that one, right? If I had limped up here with a broken leg, you all would have said, Oh, Jay, help yourself, man. What are you doing? Stop. But how many of us limp into this room with emotional, mental, and spiritual needs that we are just denying outright? Like Elijah said, how, how much longer are we going to limp between... Do, don't let Satan take away the help that we need.
Don't let fear drive us. The second way fear affects us is fear divides us. I know I've told this illustration before, but it, it's a good one. So I'm going to just act like you never heard it. When I was in high school, uh, I, I swapped to a Christian high school my last two years, but when I was in my public high school, I had a slight problem of talking back to my teachers, right? So confession. Um, never, like I never got sent to the office. Okay, let me clarify, okay? I didn't swap high schools because of this issue. Um, but, you know, I got in trouble. All right? I, had, I mean, one time I got, right before class started, this was like, you know, 7.50 right before the first bell, and I had said something back to the teacher, and I had to do the Pledge of Allegiance out in the hallway. I was like, man, that's a new low. I got kicked out of class before it started. But then I moved high schools for a lot of, for, for good reasons, for different reasons. And, and I got there, and uh, I think it was my first week in, week in class. I had that desire, you know, a teacher said something to me, got on to me. And, and my first response is, you know, this little witty comment. But then I, I realized I, I, I worship with this lady on Sunday mornings. <laughs> this lady goes to Robert Parkway Church of Christ. That lady goes to Tarrant Church of Christ. This, you know, this gentleman um, and taught my Bible class a couple years back. Fear divide, that scared me. That scared me. I was forced to see these teachers of mine as Christians first and, first and foremost, and that scared me. It scared me because of what that meant. I no longer could respond or act like I wanted to. Seeing them as Christians required me to be more. It held me responsible for being a Christian and forced me to see the people who I viewed as different as similar to me on the deepest possible level of my identity. We both follow Christ. Fear divides us because it's easy to see people who are different than us as simply that, different. Fear drives us not to reach out to those in this building who are different because of their age, income, look, or interest. They're, they're different than me. I don't have to make friends with them. I have a hard time making friends because this person across the pew, across this aisle, they're just different than me. Their looks, their interests, their style, their age, their income, they're different. And thus, I don't have to go out of my way to reach out to them. I don't have to go out of my way to be buddy-buddy to be with them because they're them and I'm me. Fear drives us not to show as much patience or concern when dealing with others who aren't like us. Fear drives, and this is a big one, fear drives us to simply not care how we come across the times, at times to the people who are different. Just look at Facebook. When we can find our identity in a political party, when we can find our identity in our interests and in our views and our skin color, when our sole identity is wrapped up in, who, in, in, in anything else than Christ, then we've missed the point. And we've missed what Christ died on the cross for. And we're not holding ourselves responsible by looking across the table and saying, you're just like me. Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 through 17, For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barriers of the dividing wall. Some of your translations might say the wall of ha ha um, uh, not hospitality, of... Uh... Anyway. By abolishing his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing the peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through cross by it having put to death the enmity, the difference, the, the damage. We must first and foremost identify with Christ. All cultural, physical, societal roles must 
comes second to that. So whether it's red, blue, black, white, Georgia colors, Georgia Tech colors, stars and stripes versus a different flag, we are one in Christ and that must come first. We cannot let fear build up the walls that Christ died to demolish. Don't let Satan take away our bond. And then lastly, fear just inhibits us. It, it, it just stops us in our tracks. There's, you know, the, there, there's the, you know, this fight or flight method. Well, I, I obviously misses one. Sometimes you'll, you'll say you kind of bow up. Sometimes you'll, um, you, you want to run away. But there's also that option of you're so afraid you can't move. I was at a camp one time, and I had a, 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 another counselor sleep, sleeping a few bunks away, and he had a night terror, and he woke up screaming and, and yelling, and he was saying some, pretty, some, some scary stuff. He, he thought a man was there. He thought someone was in the cabin, and I froze. I didn't get up. I didn't help him. I didn't get up and run away. I just sat there because I was so afraid. Fear can stop us in our tracks. Fear stops us from stepping up as leaders. Just look at the story of Gideon. When we are called to step up, our fears convince us of obstacle, our obstacles are too big and that we're not, good, we're not skilled enough to overcome them. Fear stops us from speaking up. When we know what we need to say, when we know what we need to do, we're like Moses and we say we're not eloquent enough, I'm not skilled enough. Fear says, oh, no, you don't have to do that. And then fear also stops us from showing up. I think about the, the 12 spies that came back in Numbers um, and they're afraid. They saw the promised land. They see the giants. They see how much it's going to take for them, and they just don't want to go because they're afraid. It's not worth it. So they don't show up. They just walk away. And it was hard for me to craft this lesson and not, and not talk on this, so I want, to give, I want to respect this, and I want to give it my due diligence, and I want to, I want to say it with as much grace as I can, so please forgive me if this comes out any other way. This has been a scary year. There's a lot of reason to be fearful of the, the pandemic that we had to go through, that we're still going through. There's been a lot of reasons to be afraid of this virus that, that seems to, to affect everyone so differently at different degrees. And especially we have you know, pre-existing conditions. It makes sense to be afraid of that. It makes sense to stay at home at times and to be overly precautious. It makes sense to be afraid of that. I get that. There are those of us in this room who have felt that fear. I've felt that fear. There are those of us in this room who have felt the fear of that positive test coming back. There are those of us who have felt that fear of losing a loved one because of this virus. So is it rational to be afraid of this? Yes, I understand that fear. But we can't let that rational fear make, we can't let that rational fear drive us to make irrational decisions. And maybe if I quote somebody, I won't get as much trouble, right? Because it's not my words, somebody else's. A preacher, not Kyle, a preacher. Um, I'm not throwing Kyle to the bus here. That's what I mean by that. He said, he said I'm tired of seeing people who are, who are too afraid to touch church doors. I'm tired of seeing those people wave at me with one hand on a Walmart buggy and walk past me. He says, I'm tired of seeing people who are too afraid to touch the pews in front of them but are, but are okay to go and sit in a desk 
okay to play whatever it may be. Is it rational to be afraid of the things that are going on in this world? Absolutely. I'm not knocking that. And I'm not, I don't have anybody in my mind right now that I, I'm, I'm preaching to. I'm not, even try, I'm not even intending to step on toes. I'm on my knees begging for us to see this together. I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes besides my own here. We can't let fear drive us away from what we have right here. And understand at times... It's the wise thing to do to not be here. I understand that. I'm not speaking to anybody that for uh, n- numerous reasons aren't here this morning or, or haven't been here in a while, whatever it may be. There's reasons to be afraid. But be consistent in that fear. That's where I think Satan is getting into this fear a little bit. It's because we're losing a, an aspect of consistency. Like that preacher said, not me, right? I didn't say this. I'm tired. I miss, I miss a lot of people who used to be in these pews, who, who used to sit upstairs with me in the upper room. I'm tired. I'm tired of missing them. I'm tired of going on social media or talk and, and seeing what they're doing. And I hope I haven't offended anybody. But we cannot let Satan drive us away from our God. We can't let Him take away the help that we need. We can't let Him diminish the bonds that we have, and we cannot let Him take away what we've got here. We can't let Him take away our life. So what is it going to be? You know, the the main difference in David and Jeroboam is that David is a man who was ruled by faith. His first coming on the scene story was him going up against a giant. The, the absolute opposite of, of being afraid of something, right? That's the difference in David and Jeroboam. They had the exact same start, the same potential, the same promises, everything. But one was driven by faith and one was driven by fear. And we see what their legacy is. So what is it going to be in our lives today? Is it going to be faith or is it going to be fear? Don't let fear divide your kingdom like it did Jeroboam. Don't let faith, don't let, don't let faith, don't let fear, don't let Satan take away too much from you. What drives you today? Jeroboam had everything, we do too. Will you let fear rob you of reaching your potential? And will you let fear make you miss out on the promises of God? Will you let fear drive you away from help? Will you let fear only find the differences in people? And will you let fear dictate your actions, your speech, and attendance? There's only one place in a Christian's life. For, there's only one, one reason that a Christian should have any fear in anything in their vocabulary. There's only one situation or one aspect of our life that fear should drive us and motivate us and dictate our every move. And that's a righteous and reverent fear of our God. Will you let that fear help you make the right decisions? Don't let the fear of this world, don't let the fear of Satan take you away from the goodness of God. Be fearful of God. and Let that be the thing that motivates us and drives us to move forward in our faith. This, this morning, 
if you have any need, if, if you need that help, if you want to rekindle those bonds, if you've got any need and you're a Christian and, and you need your, your, your church family around you, then don't let Satan, don't let fear keep you in the pew. Don't let Satan keep you from saying that prayer that you can say where you're at now as a Christian, reconciling yourself back to God. But maybe you're not a Christian. Certainly don't let Satan keep you in that pew. Keep you from having those discussions, asking those questions. Don't let fear stop you. If you've got any need this morning, just come forward as we stand and sing. Listen to this time if you haven't had the opportunity to fill out.